You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Let's go. I wake up to a little bit of Hey, old buddy, old pal. What's up, man? What you up to? You know, just dude, fresh, fresh off of the Christmas holiday. Sit in my basement, man. We, my, my, my family and I, we have um, kind of like a like not necessarily like a Christmas tradition, but like a winter time tradition where we watch like all of the the Harry Potter movies. Um, Kwanzaa, yeah, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day tradition. And uh, so this year, um, we <laughs> I was just like, hey, let's watch one of the Matrix movies. Because they're like they're not overly violent, right? I mean, there's not. I mean, my kids hear worse language from me uh, than what's in those movies, and my daughters love them, love them. I bet. So we, oh, dude, they absolutely love them, man. Ellie, Ellie is really into it. So we've been we watched the first one yesterday, and then we we're like halfway through the second one uh, this evening. So here we go, man. How you doing? We're we're coming, buddy. We're coming along. We uh, survived Christmas. Uh, we survived yeah. the removal of the gallbladder. Uh, yeah. That actually was a lot worse than I anticipated, and I'm not gonna lie, you, uh, it was yeah. rough. So. Yeah, you 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 were you were on the struggle bus there for a day or two. So that was, I still have a Christmas present for you that I was just like, when you heal up, just call me. Even if it's next week, I'll. So when <laughs> I've had my knees operated, when I've had my knees operated on the past, like. Yeah. A couple hours later, I'm basically ready to go. Right? Not a lot, not that last week, man. That yeah. I don't know why the ant couldn't come out of the anesthesia. Right? Heart rate was low. They kicking me out of the thing. I felt like dog crap. I mean, it was laparoscopic or whatever. <clears throat> all the gas they pump into you or something that gives you all this muscle pain, man. That sucked. And then uh, the other, the I think the weirdest part was like you come home from having your stomach worked on. And you're trying to eat crackers or chicken noodle soup or whatever just to like get by, and you throw it back up, and you're like, "Eh, I don't know if this is right." Like, I mean, instantly, like it didn't sit for five minutes in my stomach. So once that wore off, eventually it came around. But yeah, we'll, we're mm. better. we're better now, I think. Yeah. Made it through. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas <laughs> is right. Okay. What a what a day, dude. There's. Well, let's just dive right into this. 
Let's go. Christmas. Christmas. What'd you get? What did I get? I got a really nice set of knives. <clears throat> so. Okay. Uh, kitchen knives, not not butchery yeah. or anything, but <clears throat> it's kind of rekindled my desire to cook. And uh, so I pulled out a couple um, <clears throat> venison shanks from, I actually think they're from last year's deer, and made something in the slow cooker. It was like, uh, I think I took it out of the meat eater cookbook, but it was venison shanks with an adobada uh, sauce like a uh, I'd order these special chilies dried chilies off Amazon just to be able to make the sauce and uh, yeah it was really good and so I got that and uh, a blender uh, those are pretty pretty you, good. you know how about you how about you yeah um I got I got a nice watch I wanted something to hunt with like a watch to hunt. I, I'm tired of like taking my phone out and, and looking at, at the time and so i I've been hunting with uh, a watch that I have that's that's fairly nice, and and I didn't want to to damage it, so got that. Um, I got uh, probably like the coolest thing. My mom, I mean, she's she's in like her late sixties. Like buying kids for her forty year forty year old son is not fun, right? So she's like, "Hey, spend hundred bucks, give it to me, and, and I'll wrap it up." I'm like, "All right." So I bought two old school turkey calls off of eBay. Nice. Uh, and one of them's an owl hooter from like the sixties. I freaking love it. I'm going to hunt with it next year. Uh, and then another one's an old, um, for those few Turkey aficionados listening to this podcast, it's a, uh, a Roger Latham, uh, Pensewood nice. call. It's, it's, uh, yeah, dude, it was awesome. So you had a good price on, on both of them. So sounds cool. I don't know anything about what you're talking about, but it sounds cool. No. So I can hoot, hoot owl. Sound I, like a vintage hoot owl. I have to tell the story though. I was at the, yeah. <laughs> uh, about a week ago. I was at the gym and uh, <clears throat> my phone was buzzing. I could feel it on my watch. I look at it's your wife. All right. She had texted me and said, Andrew, if I ask you for Christmas ideas for Paul, can you tell me and keep your mouth shut? And I was like, yeah, as long as you don't ask me to do anything illegal, like uh, then I might have to tell the authorities. And uh, she's like, I, I can't. I'm not even gonna respond with what she said there, but yeah. anyway, um, she's like, I said, like, uh, what what are you trying to accomplish? You know, we maybe we just re-upped our our fishing trip for next year with uh, the Go Wild guys, and um, you know, maybe you could cover that for them. And <clears throat> she responded very sternly back that she had not been informed of said fishing trip, and that uh, first I've heard of this. Yes, and <laughs> I said. Oh, well, and I was like, oh, shit. Now I've sworn secrecy, okay? I can't even tell Paul what might be coming at him. And uh, the truth is, you hadn't even really agreed to it. Like, we all had agreed to it, but you had yeah. on the group text, but you didn't really say, yeah, put me in. I'm there. Like, you had. Yeah, text- I just said I, I was a hard no for one of the dates, and the other one, I was just like, yeah, probably. You texted me on the side. You're like, hey, man, I don't know. Memorial Day weekend. I don't know if I should do that. Yeah. Last year was kind of. And I. So you didn't even. I, so I, I take full blame if you took any lashings at home for a fishing trip. I did. I did. I did not. And and uh, you know, I'm married to a freaking pit bull. Uh, I can say that uh, from pure love. Um, and because she, she she can't hear me, and she's probably not going to listen to this podcast, but she is 
she's a, a pit bull. She's tough. There are times that I'm just flat out, <laughs> flat out scared of her. And dude, I, I hunt, I fit, I do all sorts of things. Like I travel a ton. So, um, if she's not like fully aware of my schedule, she gets a little bit out of shape, but woman, it's like eight months from now. Like, what are you getting upset about? Right, right, right. This is literally like August of 24. We're going to be okay. <laughs> we uh, have time to plan. This is funny because I've been sitting here for a week, like kind of worried that you were pissed at me because you were getting no. or something. I said that no. I didn't even really probably understand. I just haven't, I haven't been bothering you. Cause I wanted you to, I wanted you to heal up. You were, I talked to you on the phone once and I was like, Oh shit. He is not good. <laughs> I was like, call me when you're ready. <laughs> so the other thing, we, what's up? What do you got? Here go. Dude, we got to, I mean, well, well, first off, first off, thanks to our buddies at go wild. All right. Social media platform. Great community. Taking that fishing trip with them. Um, they have gotten us hooked up with a really neat, opportunity um to be a part of the holler shops you go to the o2podcast.com click on shop there are every product for your hunting your fishing your hiking your camping escapades are all there it's right on our shop you buy it helps us out you know this 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 podcast it, it does you know it costs a little bit of money to, to to get this thing up and running and and uh and 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 do the things that we like to do to um you know, like all the equipment, man. Like we just had to buy new equipment so that we don't sound like idiots. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, so this side, this this helps us out. Like we get we get a little a little, uh, I guess, commission or kickback, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you're buying the stuff from Johnny Morris anyway. God love him, right? You can buy it off Andrew and Paul. So check out the O two Podcast dot com. Competitive pricing. This is not something that it's like premium pricing. These are the products that you guys are using. Uh, you know, Primos, Irish Setter. All of the scent, scent control products. There's some really neat stuff. Dog gear. Dude, the, there, I was looking at it today. There was a full line of trapping gear on there. So this is the trapping season. So check out the O2podcast.com. Our guys from Timber Ninja, their stuff's on there. Yep. Half Rack, their stuff's on there. All of that. It's all easy to get right there. So that's it. That's all I got. That's it? All right. So um, I, we're kind of on that um, topic the i was alerted earlier this week <clears throat> that i may have read our uh uh one what are these called internet uh wow paul wow i need to do this are you did you just black out yes you, did, did, my brain doesn't what are you doing? your ip address i don't know what you're gonna say all right help website, you yeah, yeah, yeah all right so i've been reading it wrong um, no. and i apologize but Get deernuts.com slash Ohio is what you're looking for. Get deernuts.com. You have to put get at the front. G-E-T deernuts.com slash Ohio. We'll get you to the Deer Nuts website. And from there, you can find out where you can buy it. So I had somebody reach out to us on Go Wild and ask, hey, why doesn't this work? Uh, I want to try this for late season. Uh, I think he was able, we got them all hooked up and he figured out where to go so try out the the deer nuts if you get a chance i i do i i mean i see i'm a seer to believer i like to try things before i really jump into it at first those things were legit so um oh yeah trying to pull deer in here late in the season uh give them something else to eat try the deer nuts out uh <laughs> black hunting.com so black eight cameras Good friends, Justin and Ryan over there, still making great cameras. Oh, Paul, I sent you that video. 
I had a very nice buck walk right underneath one of my trees at 4.30 last Friday while I was mm. La La Land, and uh, he is still walking around. Still still there. Happy as Good. Guy. Throw out some of those deer nuts, man. Get another I, bag. Dude, I, eh. I'm not allowed to pick anything up over 10 pounds for the next two weeks. That's oh, so you're not, yeah, you're not climbing. You kill something, I'm going to come help you. Yeah, so. Um, that's what I would do, doing her thing. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so um, what do you want to talk about first? We got some big news, some big controversial news coming out of the state of Ohio. Let's just let's just go where everybody everybody wants. Uh, Gosh, so. Now we don't, so newsflash, Paul and Andrew are not privy to anything special. Um, uh, we just are repeating what we so I'm gonna. So I I I was on the internet the other day. So we're talking about the 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 buck that was killed back in November. The big old big old pig. Everyone's seen it. It was all over social media. Talking about new state record, like potentially like one top three in the country ever. Yeah, insane, right? So um, this 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 young fella, uh. Christopher Alexander, he went on, he went on a podcast. We are, we are Hunter, the Hunter podcast. Um, one of them's from Ohio. I've never listened to it. I do follow him on social media, um, but I've not listened to their podcast. And so they, they had, they had him on. We, we actually like would love to talk to him just cause he's, you know, he's killed in Ohio. Right. Um, and so he did that podcast and the internet started doing what it does, man. The, like the wheels started turning, and and once again, I didn't listen to it, so I don't know. But from that hunter podcast, people started questioning the story. Um, there was uh, some allegations lobbed, um, and and I I heard one that yeah, you know, it was killed miles, you know, sixty miles away or whatever it is, right? Um, so, and and the rumor mill starts spreading. So the the Department of Natural Resources today, December twenty sixth. Release this this um, this press release. You can just read it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it verbatim. I'm not gonna read all of it, but uh, wildlife resource, excuse me, wildlife officers from the Ohio Department of Natural Resources Division of Wildlife are investigating a potential record deer taking during the archery season in Clinton County, Ohio. The deer has been reported to have been allegedly been taken by Christopher J. Alexander, 28, of Wilmington, on November 9th, 2023. An investigation was launched by the Ohio Department of Natural Resources after information was provided alleging that Alexander failed to obtain the lawfully required written permission prior to hunting on private property. While the investigation continues, Ohio wildlife officers have seized the antlers, cape, and hunting equipment associated with the alleged unlawful taking of the deer. And then it just talks about uh, just, you know, kind of just talking a high level of like the DNR, not anything else. That's it. So you see, I've seen speculations that Mr. Alexander was arrested. Doesn't say that in the press release. Um, internet's going to do what internet's going to do, right? Um, so I, I, I like you said earlier, man, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch how this um, how this case un, unfolds. So you know, that's talk- a wild story, man. When we talked to Dustin Huff there, whatever that was a year or so ago, I mean that was one of the things like, you said, like. Uh, right after he shot his deer, which ended up being number two uh, in the United States, um, he's getting allegations of poaching and stuff left and right. So I think 
Andrew, 10, 15, 20 years ago, would have jumped all over this guy's guilty. I can't say it right now. Like, I'm not going to go there. I don't yeah. know the details. I think ODNR will do their job and, and do what has, you know, happens. But, like, there's, you know, you, you piss off a lot of people by just shooting a deer. Dustin Huff told us that. Uh, people just get. He had four. Dustin Huff. And, and, and we don't know. This, this, this Alexander feller could have, I mean, could have egregiously poached this animal. Um, Dustin, I think he said he had what four visits from the DNR officer, something like that. Same thing. And I on that on 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 a <laughs> what it's worth, man. Social media is not real, right? Um, I saw a uh, someone put a comment on that that you know a couple years ago they had shot a really large deer in their state, and there were some allegations lobbed at them. The DNR came, took possession of everything, right? Antler cape, all the you know whatever. Uh, did the investigation, found this guy not guilty. You know, the allegations weren't, you know, weren't substantiated and he, this guy got all of his stuff back. So, so the moral of the story is right. Due process, let this work out. Let's see, let's see where this goes. Um, and shoot, man, tiny you, bucks. You just, shoot tiny bucks, shoot the tiny bucks. Yeah. Right. Do, right. I do like that. He took it with a crossbow. I mean, if it's, if this is a legal deer, I'm, I'm, I'm Dan, thrilled. Yeah. Yeah, suck it, Dan, and all the other crossbow. And I don't, I don't shoot a crossbow. Um, I just think it's funny that people get all worked up about the crossbow debate. So I'm glad that Justin Huff legally shot it there. I hope that this Alexander Buck turns out to be uh, to be legit because I mean, you, you you hate to you hate for that to be right, you know, bullshit, right? Like that this that this guy, whatever it is, saw this deer munching corn and and you know in a field and was like, I'm gonna sneak in and like that's that's crazy to me, man. Like, I mean, we, we've all had, you know, dumb moments in our life, but you hope that, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something crazy with this, with this young guy. So, yep. um, yeah, let it, let it play out, man. I mean, that's the only thing that I can say, you know, um, people were really quick to judge. Uh, and the reality is, I mean, if, uh, if the DNR is releasing a, a press release about that, like that, uh, that, that means that there's a lot of attention on this. There's something uh, for this happen. Yep. Yeah. For this guy. And, and just read, just reading that, like, you, you know, and they, they were as professionals, all the DNR, you know, the, the investigation is ongoing. These are the facts. These are what we know. This is, you know, so good, good for them. I, I have total faith, um, in our wildlife, uh, agents to, uh, to, to, to do a thorough investigation. So, yep. Yeah. Crazy story, man. That's just, that's just insane. A couple other news items here. Uh, this is kind of a fun one. The solar eclipse of 2024 um, get left yeah. dark at Ohio State Park. So you can sleep under the stars and then stay to witness history. There are still camp spot, camping spots available for experienced campers at many of Ohio State Parks in the path of the total solar eclipse on April 8th, 2024. Um, if you get onto ODNR's website, you'll find more information about that. OhioDNR.gov. Um if you're interested in entering the Ohio Wetlands Habitat Stamp Competition, uh, that's in February. Again, let's see. Submissions for the next Ohio Wetlands Habitat Stamp Competition will be accepted February 1st through 15th. And the winner of the competition will have their work featured on the 2025 Ohio Wetlands Habitat Stamp or receive a service contract of $4,000. So that's that. Um... I thought this one was kind of cool. ODNR is encouraging New Year's resolutions with first day hikes. So as New Year approaches, we talked about this, Paul, 
and uh, kind of resolutions and getting into shape and all that kind of stuff. ODNR is inviting Ohioans to kick off the 2024 year with its annual first day hike event, showcasing the beauty of Ohio's diverse landscapes. Um, this initiative encourages individuals and families to enjoy the great outdoors, fostering a healthy start to the year on January 1st. Now, I have no idea what the weather's going to be like on January 1st, but if it keeps up like days like today, um, that would be an absolute uh, awesome way to start the year. But yeah, I think that's about all the news I've got. What do you think, Paul? Should we? We're gonna, I know it's it's this lulling period of it's a podcast lull uh, between. Christmas and New Year's. Uh, it's a human law, right? Like, dude, no one wants to do anything between crazy Christmas. You only do something if you have to, like you right. absolutely have to. So uh, I'm taking my nephew fishing tomorrow. Sorry, go ahead. How about we rerun the uh, Giannis episode? Oh, I like Kelly. Yeah, that's a good guy. That's a good one. So yeah, that was a good one. That was a good dude. Giannis or Doug Duran? That was not. We, we did Doug one other time as a rerun. But oh, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, right. I, you guys. We don't like doing reruns, but um, we want you to. We want to bring so, content that comes out when most people are listening. So I think next yeah. week, as we kick off the new year, we have a pretty good one that we're sitting. We've, on. Yeah, yeah, we have a really good one. I so my turkey season podcast is is live. Um, so you just search turkey season podcast; it'll pop up if you want to hear um, some really good turkey season stuff. So I've been working on. I've got a couple like I, I've got a couple interviews in, in in the hopper right that that I can put out, but I'm not ready to do that. So so the, this episode that I'm I'm putting up on Thursday uh, is going to be me just doing a quick intro. Hey, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that stuff. Uh, and then here is ten minutes of uh, four sounds and wild turkey gobbling. <laughs> so I just pull this like audio clip, and it's just like it's like the spring woods, dude. And you can hear turkeys gobbling and yelping. So I'm just. <laughs> I'm going to play 10 minutes of that just to get um, something. So people were either going to be like, I hate this. I mean, if I, if someone did that to me and I was driving down the road and I was like, I'd listen to all 10 minutes. I'd probably listen to that episode twice, man. Honestly, I might <laughs> so, put it on to fall asleep too. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, I hope it's, I hope it goes over well. We'll see, <laughs> but that's what's happening. But no, I got a, I got a really good, really good series coming up there. So check it out. If you like turkey hunting content, it's, it's going to be, it's going to, it's a good one. I'm, I'm proud of it so far. Cool. So that sounds good. We appreciate everybody listening. Uh, yeah. The O2 podcast.com. That's a website. Got our shop on there. You can find all the other stuff that you need on there. Listen, you can do the, uh, get us to the social media. If you got questions about sponsors, that kind of stuff's on there too. So we'll look forward go to box. go box. Big game this weekend. Uh, yeah. go box. How the brownies, man. We don't talk football. I mean, by a team that's proud of them right now. That's weird, dude. It's crazy. And Joe Flacco getting one for the old guys. Come on, man. 38, 38 years old. I so, Flacco. I like it. Good stuff. Good brownies. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week. See you guys. And what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 podcast. Today, we are joined with. Mr. Giannis Patelis from The Meat Eater. Giannis, how are you today? I'm great. How are you guys? Doing good. I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty I'm pretty excited because it's like Giannis. My wife has said, you you realize you get to talk to Giannis today? Like, he's one of your favorites from all the shows and stuff. And I was like, yeah. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay under control. So uh, we might let Paul talk. You shook him loose, Giannis. Yeah, as soon go. as you logged in, he lost it. So 
Well, so, hey, I'm, uh, I, I always tell everybody, man, I'm real happy that uh, we have so many fans and that, uh, you know, everybody watches all the content because it keeps us all uh, employed, you know. Absolutely. Very very good. So, Giannis, tell us uh, and, and our listeners that, that are somehow unfamiliar with you, uh, I, I guess, man, where'd you, where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, mostly, I'd say, uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, I was born in Indianapolis, but uh, we moved there. I was about eight up to Kalamazoo, and then I lived there until I was probably 18. Um, so I guess, you know, sort of those are my most of my, like, kid days, you know, were in, uh, were in Kalamazoo before I moved out west. So are you a Spartan fan or a Wolverine fan or – don't don't care. This 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 conversation might get cut real short. You have to remember you're talking to a couple of guys from Ohio, so you know, probably if I had to, I'd probably choose state just because it seems like they're the underdogs most of the time. There you go. But yeah, it, it's really irrelevant to me. Yeah. There you go. And we we get that I mean we ask everyone from Michigan that, and it's just some guys are like, "Man, it doesn't oh, matter." Oh, that's right, because you guys have a rivalry with Michigan. We right? do, yeah. Just that's that's cool. our that's our big Michigan, or you know, our, our big rivalry. So we, I mean, we kind of have to know, right? I mean, we're both Ohio State guys, so we uh, we always dig dig on that question. So I don't know how you guys find enough time to uh, you know pay attention and watch and do all that stuff, especially since it's during hunting season. I mean, I'm going to spike the football, so to speak, a little bit. It's because we play a lot at night when the primetime mm. is Ohio State fans. So we get to squeeze some deer hunting in. I mean, we'll have, you know, we'll have a bunch of games that, you know, start 3.30 or 8 o'clock at night, and, and, and it allows it. So, but, I mean, in fairness, it has it has reduced a lot over the years. I mean, back in college and right out of college, it was just like, that's what you did. Yeah. Um, kids kind of probably take away some of that, too. So I mean, I'm goose hunting and watching Ohio State Notre Dame this Saturday. So I, mm. it doesn't get any better for me, to be to be completely honest with you. So... Now, Giannis, did you? I, I mean, I assume that you grew up in a hunting family, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I don't know if it was a hunting family, but <laughs> my dad hunted, or he actually started hunting. I think when I was like, it was after I was born, he started hunting seriously. I can remember when I was probably like five or six. I sort of remember a few. You know, I don't know if it was Thanksgiving or, or some sort of, you know, family thing that we were doing. And it was like, well, where's dad? And, oh, he was out hunting, you know. Um, so he's sort of was getting into it, you know, just as I was, like, coming up. So he kind of had it figured out by the time I was old enough to start coming with him at, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 11. Um, and then uh, I started actually hunting. I can't remember now. It's so long ago. I hunted Wisconsin and Michigan mostly growing up. And one state, I think, was 12 to hunt, and one was 14. But I can't remember which one was which is when I started finally, like, toting a firearm around. Wisconsin's 12, and the only reason I know that, we just talked to Doug Dern a couple of weeks ago. And he right, talked about – yeah, he talked about starting at 12 in Wisconsin. So, so I I mean, you – you had kind of like a, a crazy career trajectory, it sounds like. So, I mean, you, when you graduated high school, I mean, what did you do after that? Did you go to college? or I mean, I, I read somewhere that you moved to Alaska and you were a guide. I mean, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty cool. Was that after? Or? Yeah, you got all, you got all of it right. Uh, all those, <laughs> that, that's all part of it. Uh, but the, uh, the uh, sequence might be a little bit different. But I started um, – Right out of high school, I did a year of community college and 
pretty much just wasted, you know, I think it was probably my dad's money, maybe some of my own money, too. And uh, I was really just spinning my wheels, uh, hanging out in Kalamazoo. And luckily, I had a friend who had spent the that same year um, spinning chairlifts out at Mount Hood in uh, Oregon. And uh, he came back for the summer and was like, dude, I'm going to go back out west. You should come along. And uh, that's all I needed. I was like, yeah, that sounds great to me. Let's go and, you know, snowboard the big mountains was what I was thinking at the time. And so I worked two jobs all summer. I uh, worked the, the swing shift at uh, my mom's, uh, the factory that she was uh, head of HR at. And um, then we moved out to Colorado. And um, so that's kind of how I got out west. And then um, I spent, like, I don't know, a couple, three years working in the kitchen. And at the same time, I just really fell in love with fly fishing. And then I got the opportunity to start guiding elk hunts. Um, more as, like, just like a grunt at an elk camp. But um, I guess I had just enough passion for it that uh, the outfitter, after a season, after, actually, it was only a half a season of painting and sand. I think I sanded and uh, stained a cabin, and I don't know what else kind of grunt work you had me do. Help set up the base camp, all the wall tents and whatever. And then, like midway through that season, um, he had me guiding a little bit. So um, that's how I really got involved in the outdoors. Was pretty much starting around like I was twenty or twenty-one, and at that time I was fly fish guiding for I don't know. 100 to 150 days a year and then going and guiding elk hunts or at least spending the fall you know which would be roughly three months um you know up there uh in the little flat tops of, of colorado so that's how i really got like embedded in the outdoors and in that space and then i just i pretty much kept after that that same uh schedule for the next 10 years and i was still working restaurants uh, during the uh, off season, I did some work in a retail store in the off season. And off season for me was like the winter, really, um, because even in Colorado, you can fly fish pretty much all winter long. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was able to do a little bit of that, but I still always had to supplement the work. Um, and then at the end of that. I did some other guiding gigs here and there, but at, basically at the end of that stint is when my wife and I moved up to Alaska for a job that she took. Um, and then we came back down to Salt Lake for a couple of years, and then we ended up in Bozeman um, about seven years ago, I guess now. Um, so that's kind of been the trajectory of that. And so I guess, and so I, I went from guiding and through the Alaska thing, that's how I got involved with Meat Eater. And um, it was interesting, you know, looking back on it, because, like, all those other jobs I did up to that point certainly fell right into place, and I could use a little bit of all those skills, you know, working at Meat Eater. Um, you know, knowing about gear from my retail days and knowing about cooking from my restaurant days, and then obviously the hunting and fishing guiding, um, you know, fit right into so I'm curious when it comes to your move out to Colorado and you're doing the guiding, both the fly fishing and the elk stuff, you talk about the sanding the, the, the cabin and doing all that grunt work, but you just took the skills that you had from growing up as a kid in Michigan 
and to use those in, in, in the guiding sense too, or were they training you along the way too? They weren't just oh, doing. Oh, the guiding definitely was. I think all. I don't know about all, but certainly all the outfitters that I've ever been around or worked for or worked with. It doesn't matter if it's fishing or hunting. Um, they're going to have to take up and comers and and kind of teach them the ways. Like rarely does somebody I think that really has like a complete guiding skill set just knock on an outfitter's door and go, "Hey, like I'm ready to guide." Like maybe someone that's you know, done 10 years as an elk and mule deer guide, and all of a sudden they want to take the next step and become a doll sheep guide and then go to Alaska, I think, in that case. But for the most part, there's just so – there's probably pretty high turnover. It takes a person that has a a special set of circumstances where, like, you know, with a family, it obviously gets harder, you know, if you're going to – you'd be gone for three months all fall guiding. Um, And I think that, you know, usually it's going to be, like, young, uh, probably predominantly males, you know, that are willing to, you know, work three different jobs throughout the year that don't have like a real strong, uh, sort of like career trajectory or this idea in their head that they're going to make a bunch of money someday, you know, working, you know, the financial market or whatever. Right. Like it takes a special person. I think the outfitters are constantly looking for like the next up and comer and they're probably looking for just as much um and it's no different than for me working as a producer making media or television where it's like you feel like you can teach people a lot of things but the thing you can't teach them is like work ethic right so i think the outfitters are constantly work, looking for like a kid that can show up and if they're like hey let's chop some wood the kid's like i love chopping wood you know <laughs> and then like you chop a quart of wood in, in a day and a half or whatever right like the outfitter's like, that's great, because I know they can probably do anything if they set their mind to it. I'll teach them how to elk hunt, you know. And obviously, I think I think learning how to elk hunt, there's, or any kind of hunting, there's no substitute for uh, going out there and doing it on your own, right? Like, you can, st- I mean, one of my favorite things to do as a young guide was to come back after a day of whether it was just me out ding-donging around the woods or guiding, and sort of run my whole day through the senior guides and, and you know, ask them questions about what I did right or wrong, whether it was the approach to the zone or whether it was, you know, some calling I did or whatever. But no matter how much you do that, that all helps. But you really just have to go out there and do it on your own over and over and over and have, you know, five failures and then five successes. And then, you know, you get confidence and you develop, a, you know, sort of like a – I guess a formula for your own success, you know. Did you kill an elk that first year in Colorado? Um, I had I was in Colorado a couple of years before I actually started hunting elk. The first year, I'm trying to think. So I was a client. We we booked a drop camp hunt. Um, the first year that I got into elk hunting, my dad was like looking to come out for an elk hunt, and I found. What turned into turned out to be the outfitter I ended up working for. I found him, and I was just, I was actually just asking him about ways to get elk out of the woods because enough people had said like, "Hey, dude, if you get an elk down, like, like you need you need to have a plan on how to get the elk out." So I think I was actually calling around looking for like ATV rentals or something, and uh, 
he basically had an opening at a kind of a DIY cabin that he had that was like offset from the main hunting operation. And uh, so we were clients that year. We had a terrible week of hunting, like saw like one elk in four and a half days. And uh, long story short, the outfitter came over the last morning, hiked us up the same hill we've been hiking up every day and walked into the woods kind of where we had been all day, except he was there at daylight. And we had been there probably two hours later. He was completely missing the elk. And, uh, like, he bugled once, and, like, the whole herd of elk walked by us at 50 yards, and I shot a bull. So that was kind of my first bull. But then when I started working, I can't remember. I, I know that the first year I was there, when I started guiding, I had a guy miss with a muzzle loader. I couldn't believe it. It was one of those things where I was, like, basically bugling and cow calling and raking a tree doing anything I knew how to do. And I look over and all of a sudden there's a bull standing there. I'm like, holy shit, that's surprising, you know? <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden the dude's muzzle loader goes off. There's a big cloud of smoke and the smoke clears and the bull's still just standing there. I'm like, all right, well, we're not going to get that one. And then I think I, I guided a big group of dudes that wanted to like split a guide. The outfitter was flexible that way. And so sometime in rifle season, I had like six guys in a cabin and I was guiding all of them and pretty much that just came down to like you know setting them in different spots for the day checking in on them you know helping them if they, if they got something and I think that week we killed two but I wasn't like present for either of the shots I was and again I was probably setting them there because someone else had told me like hey this is like a good spot you should have someone sitting here every day they're going to come through here um, so I guess technically I killed a few, but it wasn't the next year I think that I had like an archery hunter actually kill one with an arrow where I was present, and that probably felt more like my first, you know, guided kill. So just for timeline's sake, this is what, 20 years ago, 15 years ago-ish? Yeah, no, it's uh, that's probably around 2000 or 2001. What was... What was, I think I know the answer to this, but what was it like out there as far as popularity with um, kind of those backcountry hunts and guides and all that kind of stuff? Because I think, you know, one of the things, at least in my life, is people like you guys have, have opened this idea that and, – and the internet in general. I mean, there's so much content out there of people going west for elk and mule deer and antelope and all this different stuff. Back 20 years ago – I would have never dreamed of such an idea, and maybe that's just because of my background. But like, was it has it gained in popularity tremendously over the last twenty years that you've seen? Or you know, um, there's two ways to look at that. It's interesting because as as an outfitter and guide, like when I first started, they had a very um, robust sort of backcountry service guided hunt where like the dudes would roll into camp the guides would have backpacks packed they would go through the the client's backpack and they would literally go up in to um you know to where there was no services no support and, and basically backpack hunt for a week and it was like a very popular thing for them for whatever reason that really fell off like i never even guided got to guide one of those like it really fell off like the average client just started really wanting a, a more, I mean, I guess, cush hunt, right? Or just didn't see the value in, like, so much of the adventure of going on a backpack hunt and the hard work of a backpack hunt. And, 
were just as happy being in. We kind of had like a cabin-based haunt, and then we had a outfitter wall tent kind of a base haunt. And both of them had cooks and, you know, hot water, beds, cots, whatever. It's just, it was more comfortable. So I don't know what happened there and why the average client didn't want to do that. Maybe it's because, like you're saying, the average dude decided, the average guy that was going to do that hunt said, you know what, I can probably just do it on my own without paying for it. Um, and then, you know, as the years rolled on, I mean, that was like, those early years, we nobody had a GPS in camp. It wasn't until probably like 05, I think, when I bought my first GPS. And, um, you know, as anybody knows, man, it's like once you have one of those things in hand and you figure out how to use it, like, it makes the world a much smaller place. Um, so I think that and then the fact that pretty much everyone has one now on their phone has, like, that in of itself has given so many people more confidence, I think, to go out there and experience, you know, backcountry hunting without the need of, you know, say, a guide. Um, so, yeah, it, we talk about it a lot. It's so interesting, right, because supposedly hunting numbers are down, yet – especially out west, if you're out hunting, it sure seems like there's just more and more people. Like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, near the trailhead or 10 miles deep and everything in between. Um, there just seems to be more pressure, you know. And, uh, you know, more states, I think, are dealing with that, you know, and coming up with more limited hunts to, you know, limit some of that. Um so, yeah, I would definitely say it's, it's gotten more popular. And I don't know if it's just like a small group of people doing more. And that's how you sort of explain why, you know, the license sale numbers aren't, aren't increasing. Um, there's probably a number that shows that, like, maybe, like, country. I'm trying to think. Like, if there's more licenses sold per person now than there was 20 years ago, you know? Like, if there's more people hunting multiple states than there was 20 years ago I mean, that's that's us i would venture to say yeah, yeah. i mean if personally what For i sure. got three this year and and yeah. and i'm not, not going out west i'm um, just kind of staying within the midwest but um and that would have never happened but then again i'm at a different point in my life where, oh yeah i mean you start making more money and you got you know, more opportunity for, for individuals. Kids that can wipe their own asses and you don't have to there worry you go. about that's that it's so. a good thing getting there so so colorado you, what was the decision or the deciding factor to go up to Alaska? Did you just get bored with it? Was it a job opportunity? Uh, you know, my wife had just finished grad school, and um, we're she's looking at uh, just needed kind of a a job to you know put, put her new knowledge to work and uh, sort of like a career stepping stone, and uh, we wanted to go check out something you know, fun. And, uh, so there was a couple options in Alaska. And so, yeah, we ended up in Fairbanks for not even quite a full year. It was a uh, seasonal position. So I think we, we were up there for like nine or 10 months. Um, and then right on the heels of that, she took a job in Salt Lake and that's what brought us there. And, uh, luckily I was able, at that time I was starting to work for meat eater and I was, I was able to work remotely. So, how'd you get, how'd you get tied in with, with Steve and, and what, what was the timing on that? So it was while we were in Alaska, um, his wife, uh, Katie, uh, and I went to high school together. Her older brother and I actually have known each other since fourth grade. Um, you know, she's from Kalamazoo. She's from up north in Michigan, um, Manistee country. But uh, 
So when they started hanging out, Katie's sort of only reference to hunting and fishing was me. So anytime she wanted to sort of come in on the hunting and fishing conversation, she would just name drop me. And um, that happened enough times that I think that there's like a couple things that went down. Like my buddy Jay Scott had written an article in Western Hunter Magazine, and there's a picture of me glass and and there's a caption that just said, like, Giannis Patelis glasses, Colorado High Country or something like that. And he took that to my to his wife, and she's like, yeah, that's him. At the same time, I think that he actually was, went on a hunt with Jay in Mexico for Gould Turkey, and um, Jay and I were working together at the time. I was actually Jay's fly fishing guide for a few years, and then he brought me into the fold, and I started guiding uh, elk hunts and coos deer hunts with him. So he, he dropped my name a few times with something that, you know, that, uh, you know, whatever he, he was working with. I think something else, I can't remember. Anyways, it was enough to um, cause, to make Steve, uh, to just email me and reach out and just say, hey, you know, Katie's always talking about you. just wanted to say hey. And I was in Fairbanks, and he had drawn a sheep tag um, in Tote, which is not far from Fairbanks. And so... When we made that connection, he's like, hey, you should come along and, uh, you know, just come on a sheep hunt if you want. And I jumped at that opportunity because living there for nine months, I'd realized that if you want to go have fun in Alaska, uh, you need a lot of money because it costs money to fly places, to take boats to places, whatever. And so even though we had been doing the best exploring that we could via the road system, um, you know, to fly into the bush was like a dream come true. So I went and did that, and the rest is history. Did you get to do any, like, you personally, I mean, how was your hunting success in Alaska in that nine months? Did you, did you, know, you do anything cool? I personally didn't shoot anything. I took um, a couple dudes, because, again, I didn't become, a, I wasn't going to be a resident, and uh, just didn't didn't deem, you know, the, the money I was going to have to spend for, like, I think the only thing that was available we got there like January and I was going to be gone for the fall. So that spring, like a couple months later, maybe like in March, two guys that we befriended or were friends with, you know, some of our friends who lived in Fairbanks, there's like a late caribou hunt off the uh, Dalton Highway. And I don't, can't remember, it might be cows only that time of year, but um, basically you have to be five miles off the highway to shoot a rifle. And so we drove all the way up there um, in a two-door Civic hatchback with three guys and a dog and all of our gear enough to, um, like, pull sleds. If you've ever heard of a polk sled, it looks like a um, it looks like a really basic classic toboggan, but it's like a thousand dollar version of that and it's got like a metal frame that you attach to your hips so we carried packs and those and then pulled those sleds we were able to drive i think two miles to a lake and then we skied another three miles on very thin snow like a lot we found a, a whole pile of uh, caribou antlers they were just sticking up everywhere but uh we skied out there and killed uh three cows so that uh um, each of us could have one, but, uh, they, they were the guys that did the shooting. I was just there to, uh, help out. <clears throat> they were pretty fresh hunters. So, um, 
I, you know, quote unquote, did some guiding up there. But uh, so to revisit your point from earlier, have a plan to get this giant animal out. You had three dead caribou in a Honda Civic. <laughs> Did you just drive the drive the sleds behind the Civic? How'd you get all that meat home? Uh, you know, I, I look back on it, and I don't know how we sanded it all in there. I can tell you this: that highway has a lot of frost teeth on it, and every single time we went over a frost teeth, those tires would rub. And every single time, you just hold your breath and hope that the tire didn't bust. Um, Man, that's wild. But yeah, we you know caribou aren't huge animals, but I'm guessing we still added, you know, hundred. 50 pounds maybe of of meat and meat and uh i guess we didn't take out any antlers because they're just like those cows the little bitty antlers um it was really interesting because they're they're getting ready to lose to shed their winter coats so i've never experienced anything like it but when you went to skin them or like just you know make the gutting you know incision like there was just hair flying everywhere because you could literally just rub your hand across the hide and the hide, you know, the hair was getting ready to let loose. And um, it was pretty interesting because, you know, when we hunt, we never hunt animals in that, that, when their hide is in that stage, you know. That's probably a mess. That's crazy. So at the time when, when Steve came knocking, were you creating, you know, content, uh, you know, with your hunts or were you just guiding and, and hunting yourself? Uh, I was doing a little bit. So my buddy Jay Scott that I mentioned earlier, he uh, had a blog, uh, Jay Scott Outdoors. I believe it's still up. I don't know if he actually adds anything to it these days, but uh, I was I was writing an article here and there, um, just basically like a blog post with some pictures just about my adventures. Um, and just through guiding, I had spent a fair amount of time behind a camera, you know, just taking lots of pictures and making sure my clients had, you know, good um, you know, documentation of their fishing and hunting trips, you know, and I felt like that was like a, you know, a service a guide should provide. Um, but that was about it, you know. Um, so I was involved a little bit of it. You know, Jay um, and I were probably doing a few YouTube videos. You know, that was very much in the beginning of all of that. And so everybody was kind of like wondering like, oh, should we do, you know, videos on YouTube? Is that going to be worthwhile? <laughs> Here we um, are. So a little bit of that, um, but um, not too much. Not not too much. You know, the, I think the reason I the, I was telling the we flew with the same guys that we flew with on that sheep hunt just a couple weeks ago. Where we I was up there caribou hunting, and uh, I was telling the, one of the pilots that uh, when we were on that sheep hunt together, the reason I got hired on is because I was sitting around looking through my glass so much. And just picking up game, you know, on the hillsides. I think Steve was like, uh, none of you guys on the crew do this at all. It'd be very nice if we had a dude that was just happened to be able to find game, you know. <laughs> like it's an important part of the of making a hunting show, you know. So did did Steve kill uh did he did he kill a goat or a sheep that uh, that hunt? He did, he did. We actually had Paul Neese from uh, Vortex with us and um uh, Steve killed a sheep, like, I think it might have even been the first day we could hunt. So I think we flew in, landed, packed, like, halfway up this mountain. And uh, Paul Neese actually went up. To, it's an episode. You can watch it. It's on probably the Meat Eater YouTube channel right now. But, uh, yeah, Paul went up a different ridge, and he could he was glassing 
to our ridge and basically saw some rams above us and um, kind of did uh, played some charades, you know, and uh, through the binoculars, you know, we figured out that, you know, we had rams above us. So we were, we were pretty socked in, but in the morning we crept up there and, uh, I mean, just at the right time, the clouds lifted and we were like, I don't know, 300 yards from two two rams and uh, sneak, sheep with a sneak on them and killed them. Um, and then because it happened so fast, I think Paul Neese then actually got a bear tag, and then we went and hunted bears for a few days. So I guess one of the questions I have at this point in the, the whole saga, did you have any idea that Meat Eater was going to explode into what it has come become today? No, 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 not at all, not at that point. I mean, I liked, I could tell that, you know, what Steve was doing was something different. Um, and you know, that certainly intrigued me, you know, about the whole thing. I could, you know, his just, uh, his brain power is pretty impressive. You know, that dude, that dude's a thinker and then can express his thoughts extremely well. And, um, you know, that was very apparent, you know, early on. And, uh, you know, I was impressed by, you know, just his sort of, um, just overall woodsmanship. You know, a lot of us are. At the time, you know, I, I would have I been like, yeah, I'm an elk hunter. That's, like, really all I – well, no, I would have said I'm an elk hunter and, and then a trout fisherman, you know. So I was very focused, and Steve had a very, like, broad sort of knowledge of, like, you know, a fair amount of different kinds of fishing. He had been a trapper, um, you know, and then had messed around with all different kinds of, you know, big game here and there. Um, and then when I read a couple – I think I actually maybe read one of his books prior to that trip. And, um, you know, that's what really, like, probably flipped the switch for me is I was like, man, this dude's, like, really making, like, hunting, I guess just um, representing hunting in just such a different light than it had been done up until that point. You know, I mean, it's kind of the same, you know, most of us kind of grew up with the same hunting media that was on, you know, whatever, the early days when it was on ESPN and NBC and it kind of slowly switched over to the those smaller cable networks but uh you know steve's take on it was just so uh so fresh and different even though it's like what was always weird about it and even now when people say oh yeah like you guys have done so much to you know change hunting this that and the other and so much good for hunting and i'm like yeah but we really haven't because all we've done is sort of focused on like the hunting that all of us grew up with because that's all we did. I mean, we just started talking about like the hunting that we had growing up, you know, and, and how that was. And it was just, I guess it was just different enough from what was portrayed in hunting media that a lot of people were like, Oh yeah, these, this whole program's legit because they could just relate to it more, you know, but no, the short answer is no, I had no idea it was going to blow up. I mean, I knew that uh, he was going to have some long legs with, with all of this. And, uh, um, you know, like anybody, I think at the time, I was also just very uh, stoked to sort of have an opportunity to be uh, working, you know, to find, you know, outside of guiding, to find a different way to be working, you know, staying outside, messing around with hunting. You know, because I like being behind the camera, you know, I, I started getting trained to work the camera, and it was just, you know, for, like, again, a guy with no college education, it was like a, a seemingly uh, – decent career path opportunity to 
you know, make a decent living and keep doing what I like to do. I def- so one of the things when you're talking about all your, your different jobs and when I did this for the winter and this in the summer, and I'm one of those people that's like every two weeks I have to know where that paycheck's coming from. I have everything very organized. So it's, to me, some of your adventures would just have blown my mind. I, I can't really conceptualize a lot of that. So uh, kudos to you on that. But I'm definitely a trust the process guy. I'll jump off a cliff and be like, eh, we'll figure it out on the way down. Yeah, so, I, I've noticed that. That's, yeah. that's why we get along well. So. so Giannis, when you're out backcountry in Alaska, did, did did Steve talk with you about getting on board with Meat Eater, or did you kind of get that vibe? I mean, when did, when did he give you the job offer? Was it when you were gutting a ram? Oh, dude, it's too funny, man. We like we literally had met for the first time when I when I think I met him, or maybe someone picked me up, and then we went to pick up the rest of the crew at the hotel in Fairbanks. And so I met Steve there, and we took a picture to send to his wife, Katie. And... Um, Got in the car together, and we were driving the whatever, three hours down to Tote. And, like, halfway there, I almost remember it was, like, because you had to go, you had to drive by, um, oh, there's an Air Force base, Eilson, something like that, I think. I pretty much, it's like a long stretch when you're driving by the base. I pretty much remember him at that point. This is, like, an hour into our drive. He's like, if you're interested in a hunting show, man, I can make that help make that happen for you. <laughs> I'm like huh, that's interesting, but no, no thanks. I'm like, not, like, I'd be much happier just kind of staying below the radar. I don't need a hunting show, and I don't need to be a, you know, hunting show TV host, and it's just not, you know, not what I'm looking for. And uh, he's like, okay, whatever. So when we got to Tope, the producer at the time, Dan Doty, he said, hey, I got some paperwork for you to fill out so you can, um, you know, you can get paid and we're covered under insurance or whatever. I was like, oh, I was like, I was like, oh, you don't have to pay me, man. I'm just here for the ride. Like, I'm, I'll be happy to help out, but I'm just stoked to be here and getting a free bush flight, you know. And he's like, oh, no, we're going to pay you. I was like, oh, all right, well, that's great. It's like paid vacation, you know. And uh, so that's sort of how I got offered, you know, the job of – it was basically on a per-sheet basis at that time. So when they were going out – because – I did well on that hunt, and they had a second, they had a caribou hunt planned on the heels of that, and so they asked me if I wanted to go, and the position at that time was, it's still called um, WPA, which stands for Wilderness Production Assistant, and uh, it just basically means you're just going to do all the grunt work, carry the heaviest bag, possibly run like the long lens camera, you know, run and get water, you know, help people make tents. And cause a lot of the, some of the cinematographers, at least at that time, necessarily weren't experienced, uh, you know, backcountry dwellers, so to speak. And so they might need help, you know, just making sure they got clean water, or making sure they got their tent set up right, or making sure that when it starts dumping rain, that they're doing the right things with their gear and, you know, everything to stay dry so they can keep doing their job. But, yeah, so that was the job, was WPA, and, and uh, so I did those two hunts in a row in Alaska, and then they had some stuff coming up in the fall. I didn't turn down a couple shoots because I already had uh, guiding uh, that I had signed up to do. But um, luckily, while I was between shoots, uh, Steve was writing the, um, the meteor's guide to uh, – hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game, the first one, the, the big game volume. And so I started 
writing on that project and helping put that book together. And so that sort of helped me have work for, you know, billable hours between shoots. And so that sort of just kept building and building, and eventually, you know, I, I forget how long it took. If it was a year later, maybe when they actually gave me like a um, a full time position. Was Steve like when, when Steve's like, "Hey, man, do you want to hunt and show?" And you're like, "Nah, I'm good." Was that, was he just kind of shocked, or was he like, nah, "All right, that's fine." I, I was that. I mean, because yeah, Steve Ronello is like. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think it really shook him one way or another. He's like, you know, just respected my uh, opinion and, yeah. you know, moved on. I mean, because, you know, Giannis feel like, hey, do you guys want a hunting show? I would I would, I would, would literally tell my wife we're moving to wherever today. Like, we're just going to pack her. I'm going to say yes before I even talk to my wife about it. But then she, you know, good for you, man, having that uh, that discipline. I mean, I, so. you know, at the time, honestly, I didn't know, you know, I was whatever. How old was I back then? I guess I was, like, early 30s and. I didn't know enough about it, you know. I didn't know what it would take to be to have a hunting show, you know, to be a hunting show TV show host, you know. And then I was lucky enough to then, you know, work with Steve for whatever it was the next seven, eight years, you know, all the way from that WPA position all the way to you know getting like the director credit on those shows and doing every little you know step of the process along the way. Including like directing Steve himself and getting, but the important part was for me now is that I was able to watch him work on the other side of the camera, and so when they asked me to do that, you know, I I have like a really nice, um, you know, bank of experience to to uh, you know look back on and uh, you know just thank goodness I was paying attention, you know. <laughs> so like when when you're is the WPA or even the director and you're out there, I mean, do you guys get to hunt on some of these episodes or is it just, you know, Steve or whomever the, the, the meat eater personality is and you guys are just there for the ride? Yeah. You're there just to work. Um, every now and then, like there would be an instance where whitetail deer hunts, for example, like on a lot of hunts were the whole crew is there almost the whole time, except for like the final stock, you know, you're kind of always there you know, and the producer slash directors sort of overseeing and kind of helping the whole thing move along. Um, ex- except for, like I said, the final stock when Steve and just one camera operator will probably move off to try to get that done. Otherwise, you got, you know, five or six people, sometimes a little bit four, but five or six people, depending on if there's a guest on the show, that are together the whole time. Whitetail deer hunts, though, uh, especially archery, like don't lend themselves to that. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever hunted with a cinematographer, but like that in of itself, you're like, man, I'd probably be having better luck with just me hanging out in this tree and not this other dude also here, like moving around with that big shiny camera, you know? And, um, so there's a couple of instances where I would just sort of produce direct, like every morning be like, Hey, make sure you guys talk about this, talk to the, you know, the, to the camera operators, make sure you're getting, these shots if something if you get a deer down call me i'll be right there you know then we'll kind of go and do it together but in those instances if we were on like a like we hunted a buddy of our farm that's like 600 acres and so steve was hunting mark canyon was hunting there was still plenty of room and i was like well i'm not just gonna sit around all day i'll go sit in a stand too you know 
But for the most part, um, I'm trying to think if like there's been another meteor hunt where anybody behind the scenes got to actually shoot something. I've heard a lot of the guys that go through like the Midwest whitetail that that Bill Winky would like tease them with with hunts. Like, okay, you do this and get this done, we'll let you hunt. You know, and I, I've always wondered if that was something you guys did. Like, all right, drag no, this elk like, out five miles, Giannis, and we'll let you we'll, we'll let you go hunt an elk. No, when you when you pack elk out five miles, you do get to take some elk meat home, um, which, you know, we've always been good about making sure we've got a cooler meat to take home. I guess on bird hunts, like I remember on a Texas Sandhill Crane episode, you know, the guys tagged out one day, the birds are still flying, and Steve's like, dude, like, put a gun in Mike's hand, put a gun in so-and-so's hand, and then, like, you know, we get a few more passes, and couple other people shot birds um but big game i don't think that that's really a thing you know because it's like it's usually you just don't want to break the flow you know once you like if something is harvested then you want to go into you know capturing all of that and then that leads to the butchering and then the cooking scene and then it's just you know it's sort of a wrap there have been a couple times if we finished early and the hunting was good i would uh not get the early flight back and stay and hunt um like for and then maybe extend my trip you know if i was like feeling like there's a good opportunity there but uh not for the most part man you're just there working if you had to guess how how much of the time percentage wise is the camera actually rolling like you guys aren't it's not on 100 percent of the time no right? not at all man um that's a good question. It's <laughs> I'm trying to think what those guys shot in a day. Um, I mean, if they if we were you know out and about and awake for 12 hours, I think there's a really good chance there could be three to four hours of footage, you know, per day. Um, yeah, because I don't think it's 50, it's definitely not 50% of the time, but it could easily be a quarter of the time. And I can tell you this, that, you know, most television, if you see a 30-minute episode on television, it's actually only 22 minutes long because of commercial breaks, right? Right. And to distill down a hunt where you've been out there for, you know, Five days is like the minimum. I don't like to make them scrunch them any harder than that. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's a seven-day or, like, if it's moose or sheep, like a real big investment, you know, you might be out there for nine days. And then to, to cram that into to 22 minutes, man, there's a lot left that does not make it, you know. Um, and it can be hard. It's like a hard pill to swallow. when uh, when It's called a shooting ratio, like, so sometimes on a big hunt like that, you might be shooting like a hundred minutes to one minute that actually makes it in, right? Um, in a perfect, there's been a few times where where they've managed to shoot a whole episode in one day, and you know, so you brought your shooting ratio down to maybe like five to one or something like that, which is just incredible. The editors love it because there's just like less stuff to scrub through. They can pretty much just be like, okay. There it is. There's the beginning of the day is the beginning of the show. The end of the day is the end of the show. Somewhere in there, there's going to be 
you know, the, the apex or the hurdle, you know, that the protagonist has to deal with. And then you're going to have your resolution, and then it's over. And it's very nice when it's tidy and compact. To do that over a longer period of time, it, it, like, it gets harder and harder, you know. Um, but that's where, like, you know, good storytelling, you know, comes into play and, and knowing how to, you know, how to tell a story about a nine-day hunt without having to be like, and now it's day three. We're waking up again. Didn't see a moose on day three. And now it's day four. It's raining a little bit. We didn't see a moose today either. You know what I mean? Like, no one wants to watch that. That gets real boring real quick. My daughter would appreciate it because every time she has to do something like that, tell us about your day, Annie. Well, I woke up. Um, I brushed my teeth. I came downstairs. Okay. No, no. I don't need that. Tell me about, like, what act. To your point about the shooting ratios, that's fascinating. 100 minutes filmed, 100 minutes on the show, or one minute on the show. I think it's for a lot of the hard feelings for content consumers have come from, because I mean, you, you watch a 22 minute show on outdoor channel or whatever it is. And for a guy like, you know, that, that just hunts public land or, you know, that just not shooting these monster, you know, 180 inch deer every year. And you're like, man, like uh, that perception is reality, right? Like you don't see the entire story. You don't see that, that that person on the TV show just hunted for eight weeks to get you 22 minutes. So I think where that's, I mean, you guys kind of started a lot of that kind of, telling the whole story or more of the story, uh, you know, on, on Netflix and, and through other channels. So, I mean, you've been a part of that evolution. What was that like? Just, you know, you're watching content on TV and all of a sudden you're part of the content. I mean, what was kind of the story process that Steve brought you into with meat eater about telling the story, I guess that's a hard question. Yeah. I mean, the, it was interesting because, we the the show was produced and owned in the early days by a company called Zero Point Zero Productions. Um, they're probably best known for producing Anthony Bourdain's shows over the years. But uh, there wasn't a person on that hundred person staff that knew anything about hunting besides Steve and I, and I mean nothing. And you would think that that would, like, be, like, just terrible. You'd be like, well, how are they going to tell a hunting story, you know, when nobody knows anything? But what was, what was cool about it is that you had all these fresh people for fresh minds that were very interested in hunting and this thing that Steve was bringing to them. But when they would look at the footage or look at the story, like, totally different things might jump out and capture their imagination or or their creative mind compared to like, if you watched it, you know, and so you would tell a story in one way, but they'd be like, yeah, but you know, what was really neat is when you guys were talking about, you know, X, Y, Z. And even though that's not like, like totally related to like how to kill that sheep, um, that shows just like more about like, it, it, it develops the character because the character is talking about something like else important in their life or whatever it might be. You know what I mean? But like, they it, it turned into be a, like a real good chemistry because you know those editors would always just sort of be able to find these stories that were in there that you know me I was always pretty much looking at very you know linear like how to tell at least in the early days how to tell that hunting story the best and keep it like the most authentic to you know or like what really happens on the hunt and with what I learned from them is that, you know, what's really important or what it makes for me engaging content is that like 
you got to become like invested in that character, right? You want to like know who they are and, and listen to them talk about what they're thinking about and, and you know what's troubling them or what's making them happy. Um, and then same thing with conversations between people. Like some of the best moments in I think in Meat Eater TV across eleven seasons are when Steve is talking with somebody else and they, and there's nothing to do about hunting at all. Um, like him and Parker Hall talking about how to spit sunflower seeds out, right? Like, it's totally, like, stupid and goofy, but, like, it's, like, there it is. You're caught in that moment, and it's, like, it's magic, you know? Or, like, when Kevin Murphy, you know, blows his horn for the first time, and Steve's, like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> really? You blow a horn every day when you go hunting? Like, that's amazing, you know? Um, but, uh yeah, so, yeah, it, it's been a great, great um, educational experience for me, you know, to learn how to, you know, hopefully make, you know, good, engaging uh, content. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, you talk about, and they're just non-hunters that are a part of the creative process that see things a different way. You know, I see, you know, I'm scrolling through Netflix. I'm like, oh, Giannis Honey Mock Socks? I'm, I'm in. I'm going to watch that entire episode, right, or whatever it is. I was at an event for the BHA, and we went fishing. Uh, in Long Island Sound in New York City. And I was there, you know, 100 people on this boat, and, and half of them had never hunted and had no desire to hunt, but they loved Meat Eater. And so, I mean, you guys have done a nice job of telling that story to non hunters about, you know, this is, it's more than just shooting something. You know, it's talking about spitting sunflower seeds and, you know, breaking the sight off your muzzle loader, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it is. So I think that's that, that relatable. That's such a hard thing to accomplish. And you guys have done have done a really really good job. So muskox, I know you've hunted those. What like what's some like just some crazy stuff that you've gone in episode or not? I mean, you've you've been all over. Have you gone out of this country or just stuck to North America for your hunts? Um, no, we've been to South America twice, making episodes uh, once to uh, Bolivia and then once to uh, Guyana. Both times, kind of did like river. Um, access trips where we you know basically took these dugout canoe type boats with uh basically was the equivalent of like a, a go devil you know like a mud motor if you're familiar with those um like a really long shafted um you know tiller that uh, is able to you know bounce over stuff when you hit it and uh those are both the the guyana adventure wasn't quite as wild because it was a little bit more um, like just about anybody could call we might have gotten like a, a little bit of extra sort of adventure but you can pretty much call down there and go through the same lodge that is owned and operated by the dude that we went with and go on the same adventure we did right they mostly cater to fly fishermen that are looking to catch the uh, arapaima which is like the largest freshwater fish in the world um but uh, the one in Bolivia, that was, like, full-on felt like <laughs> there was a camp ahead of us at the end of the river, like, where we couldn't take the boats any farther. But I think that that camp had literally been there for, like, maybe two or three weeks. And besides that, I don't know when the last time, like, somebody sort of from the outside world had been up there. Because as you move up the river, you're literally stopping in these little villages. You're passing some by, but we were stopping in villages to pick up um, dudes that would help us hunt, that would, you know, just help kind of with the whole expedition. 
And so that had a real, like, just, like, anymore, man, that's what, like, I crave. As much as I loved going to Wisconsin and sitting in my deer stand, I love that because it's still new to me. Even though I kind of grew up doing it, I'm now really applying myself to it. But, like, even though this caribou hunt I went on two weeks ago, like, and, and this sounds like highbrow and it's not meant to be at all, but, like, I've done that trip now, whether it's for caribou or for moose, you know, I don't know, that was maybe my fourth or fifth trip, including this time we went with Steve for the sheep. And, like, you kind of know what to expect. And, you know, unless the plane goes down, <laughs> like, there's not going to be, like, this real adventure, right? You, know, you just know what's going to happen. And that Bolivia trip, it was, like, every day you're kind of, like, looking over your shoulder and being, like, okay, don't mess up. We need to stay safe. We need to, like... You know, don't get bit by some crazy shit because no one's coming to help you. You're not going to get out to, like, a real hospital for days, you know, at least. Um, I mean, that's the time Steve got hit by that. Uh, bullet ant or whatever. Yeah, the bullet ant. What were you guys um, chasing in Bolivia? We hunted, um, i trying to think what Steve shot. When he and I were to get, we were, because the dudes that were taking us hunting, they didn't want the whole crew out there. But we were like, well, it has to be two of us because Steve's hunting and then there has to be a camera. And so we were trading off every night who got to go into the jungle at night because it was such an experience. Like the jungle during the daytime and the jungle at night is like literally, you know, being, I, I don't know, like in Africa in one moment and then in the United States in the other. It's just two different worlds. And... um it's just, you know, you can't understand how loud it can be at night. Like, when all the bugs are just going off, it's like this cacophony, white noise, just, like, intensity where you kind of feel like you have to be whispering. The dudes wanted us to whisper to not spook game, but at the same time, it's, like, so loud that um, you almost feel like you have to talk in a regular voice just so the person next to you can hear you. Anyways, everybody wanted to experience it. And so I think one night we killed a deer. I'm trying to think what else. It was during the daytime when Steve wasn't going to kill a monkey, but the dudes with us killed a monkey. And uh, I remember that. that's when we, we ate a monkey a few days later, nice. uh, which is pretty wild. I'm trying to think what else. We, we did a lot of fishing on that trip. We caught some, like, crazy white and black striped catfish. Um, they had those uh, golden Dorado in that river, um, which is the dudes that took us were sort of, were, uh, you know, building out an outfit to service, again, fly fishermen that wanted to catch those golden Dorado. It's a, uh, you know, for like people that fly fish the world, that's like, a, I think a pretty sought after species. Um, but yeah, so I think, there was a chance that we would have shot, like, maybe we did shoot some birds. Um, I think there was, like, a crested curacao was a bird that we were after. I think there was always a chance of um, capybara, which is basically like a giant guinea pig. When I say giant, like 40, 50 pound um, guinea pig. Uh, I, I'll just going to say this because I know there's other people out there thinking this. Um, please, you keep going and making those shows because mm -hmm. I don't want anything to do with the jungle and the dark and whatever's out there. So we appreciate you for, for your 
taking that risk. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. that Those shows definitely didn't resonate with our audience. Um, and so I think that a lot of people come from that space, like where there's, if, I think if you just took, you know, the populace as a whole or even like the group of hunters as a whole in our country, like there's a lot of people where hunting to them is, and I grew up with those people, like going to Wisconsin deer camp and spending three to five days there. And that, and that might be it. Maybe you throw in a pheasant hunt there and maybe a goose hunt there, but like, you know, a lot of people's hunting season can be like 10 days or less. And, you know, maybe while you're in deer camp, you actually make it to the field twice out of five days, right? That's like a very normal thing. And it's totally fine to be that way. And I think there is like a, a sliver in there where, like what I'm talking about is like, I like going on those, like the adventures where you're, you're, there's like a really good chance, not really good, but like a solid 50-50 chance on whether you're going to have success or not, you know, and you know you're just going to have to work again, work hard for it, and be up against like some serious stuff. And whether that means climbing up mountains or enduring weather, or just enduring like sitting, yeah, sit weather and sitting in a tent for three days, like all that stuff. You know how we like everybody jokes about type two kind of fun, right? Where like when you're there, it's like, oh, this sucks, but then like. When you get home, you're like, oh, no, that was real, man. That was a good adventure, you know. Who who comes up with these hunts? Because you said you, the way you do it. Giannis, if you walked in my office, you're like, I have this crazy idea. Knight, juggle, bow and arrow, monkeys. Sign me up. Like, that's that's a no-brainer. I mean, do you, are you guys just trying to come up with, like, crazy shit that you can, that you can do just to, like, push the envelope? Or is it just... I mean, do you walk into Steve Rinella, Steve Rinella's office like, all right, this is what I want to do. And it's just this obscene, like, yeah, I, w- I want to hunt a walrus with a knife. Like, <laughs> who's coming up with this stuff? I mean, it, it, it comes from all different creative angles. I mean, I, I would say that, and it, and it definitely has evolved over the years because early on, it was probably a lot of, and, and I'm in the same boat now, but probably early on for Steve, it, it was like, man, I've never done that. I've never been able to do it, but now I can because, like, we're working, and so there's a budget for it, and I can go and experience that haunt or adventure, right? Um, so there's probably some of that going on where he's like, let's go and do that. Like, I want to go and try. Because I think the way he originally got to South America was he was down there for a um, a magazine writing assignment, and he met this dude, and the dude was talking about how he bowfished for these uh, vegetarian piranhas, and um, yeah, it's a piranha that basically eats like you know vegans, you know, aquatic vegetation in, in the rivers, and uh, so once like so, Steve had that idea. And he, came to me he's like dude we got to make that happen we got to go down there and go bow fish for these you know crazy red uh you know vegetarian piranhas um but like a lot of it you know it can just come through an email man or just like meeting the right person because again it's like it's not necessarily the hunt it's like that's why i like squirrel hunting right it's like people are like why would you even go do a hunt on squirrel hunting it's like well because we got to meet Kevin Murphy. Like, that dude is, like, a treasure of, of our country. And, like, he's just such a cool dude and so interesting. And, like, his passion for squirrels is unmatched. And, like, Squirrel it makes for entertaining television. 
You know what I mean? And so we went and did it. And, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, man, I mean, it just, it's a little bit of everything, you know? And obviously it's like, you don't see Steve. Like, I can't even remember. I think there's been one episode where he shot a white-tailed deer. But anytime we've been white-tailed deer hunting, like, he's been taking other people white-tailed deer hunting, whether that was Joe Rogan and Brian Callen or uh, Helen Cho and Brittany Brothers. Um, you know, he grew up doing it. He's kind of, like, had his fill, and he's, like, more interested in, what you know, whatever, doing stuff that he hasn't done. Um, and so that's probably why you don't, you know, you don't see him doing too much with white-tailed deer anymore. But, uh, yeah, we don't, we definitely don't sit around trying to come up with crazy ideas. For instance, we've always wanted to go and hunt these Capra Kelly grouse, which is like a grouse that's like almost the size of a turkey. And they're over in, um, Sweden and probably with going overseas, a lot of times there's a language barrier, right? And so we kind of had contacted a few people and just nothing ever really seemed to get going or clicking. And then finally, uh, we were hanging out with uh, Rob from uh, Spartan Precision that makes the uh, bipod that we use. And he's like, oh, you want to go shoot grouse, Capricelli? Like, I got the dude for you. Just don't take my spot because, like, I want my spot. And I know when you guys go, you guys are going to get the creme de la creme spot. So don't do that. But, like, so he introduced us to the dude that's, like, he's, you know, he's, like, got dogs for these grouse or he's got these 10-foot skis that we were going to use for these grouse. And um, we had a trip planned for this December. Unfortunately, it got uh, canceled for, uh, you know, just outside reasons that, uh, you know, no reason to explain, but it got canceled. So hopefully we'll do that. But it's just one of those things, you know. It's like, yeah, it's going to be a good adventure. And, I mean, we're going to go all the way to Sweden just to shoot one or two of these big grouse, but uh, I guarantee it'll, like, enrich our lives, you know? So, what is it, 10 seasons now? The Kevin Murphy episode is probably, the, those episodes are my favorite. My kids, they always want, we want to watch the moose one. We want to watch the moose one where Steve gets almost attacked by the moose that was wounded. What, mm-hmm. if you had to pick one episode, what's your favorite episode? Mm. Well, that's a tough one. Um, it would certainly be something from those seasons of when I was, you know, producing and directing the show. Um, just because there's, you know, there's moments like if you're, if you're there and you make sure your team is there to capture those moments and then they make it into the show, you know, you kind of felt like it all clicked and you did your job and, and you really nailed it. Um, I, you know, one of my favorites, and certainly a fan favorite, is the one with my dad when he shoots the moose. Um, you know, I hear that a lot. People love that episode, and, uh, you know, I can rewatch it and get a kick out of him and Steve arguing about, you know, digital and analog clocks. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the one that we – Steve did a solo one. I was, this is something I get after Steve a lot. He used to do solo episodes way more often. And, you know, there's a very different Meat Eater episode when he's solo versus when he's got a guest. And um, you sort of just get 
a little bit more into the inner workings of Steve's head when he's by himself and he's sort of forced just to like talk to the camera. Um, so he did one where we went coos deer hunting and it was a small crew that time. It was just four of us. And, um, you know, the, the episode, there was a little bit of action. We saw some deer. He put a stock on a buck and there was the buck that got spooked by a bobcat, um, which was interesting. Um, and I didn't get one. But, like, he did a lot of talking about his dad and about his dad passing away. And uh, what was cool about that one, too, is that the editor, just when he scrubbed it and watched it, he had this idea. He's like, you know what? I'm not going to put any music to this episode. It's going to be all natural sounds. Just wind, birds, you know, boots on rocks. That's it. No music at all. And, um. Now that you hear about it, you should go and watch it because, like, it, it maybe most people can watch it and probably did not even notice that it didn't have any music in it. But, like, I just remember that <clears throat> episode coming back after the first cut. We usually go through three cuts. Like, you get, like, the first cut, you get some notes. Second cut, you get some notes. And then it's usually after that, they're not going to really take any more notes from you. They're like, if you didn't catch it at this point, it's too bad. Like, we're moving on. And they got to get, get into, like, the coloring phase and, you know, tweaking everything to make it look right. Um, but that was an episode where when the first cut came, and, we, and I think Steve and I even got to watch it together as we were, whatever, working on some other project, and we watched it. And uh, it was one of those things where you just watched it, and you're like, holy shit, man. Like, that, like the, we were speaking more about the editor, and obviously we put a lot of work into getting it to, but it was just like, man, he nailed it. Like, just hit it out of the park. Like, we really didn't have you know, any serious notes to give about it. Like, it was just all there. It was a beautiful, you know, piece of work. And, um, you know, just something you can feel proud of, you know, when it comes together that nice and you know it's going to be a home run. I'll have, to, I'll have to watch that, watch that episode. I've got, I've got two more questions, Giannis, if, 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 you, uh, if you have time. So the first question you just talked about just popped in my head. You said you've got three cuts. Uh, that you go through. Is there anything that you've ever pulled, like that you've watched or Steve watching? Like, absolutely not. That's not going in. Take it out. That is just funny or embarrassing or just you know, just something that you're like, that's not going in. I refuse to let that happen. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just you have to save yourself or save somebody from whatever. Uh, Steve and I have argued sometimes. There's definitely been over the years times when um, when like. And necessarily maybe wasn't Steve, but it could have been a guest that say shot three times or even four times. And, and I'm always like, we got to put it all in there because that's how it goes. We got to show that. And Steve's like, you know what? I really don't think it's going to add that much to it. It's like, it gets to be egregious. And so we've kind of had like a conflict about that over the years. So there's definitely some times when, you know, you can apply whatever reasoning you want to it, but there's like that where it's just like, you know what, it's not going to benefit us to really go down that, you know, route and show five shots. We're going to keep it to one or two, you know. And we've never done it where it's like, oh, it was five and we made it look like the person killed it on one shot. Like we still want to show that, you know, something went wrong then they had to follow up. You know, you've obviously seen it on the show where it's like there's imperfect shooting, you know. And, um, but the decision to make 
to tell that story but not have to show it through five shots going boom, um, you know, might be something we take out. Other times when just, like, if it's something that's embarrassing to, like, if it's embarrassing to me or Steve, like, I think we would just, like, always put it in there because we just sort of are, like, we think that that is relative, right, to show you slipping or falling or sliding or whatever it might be, missing, um, like, it stinks at the moment to have to show that on TV, but, like, you, we always get great feedback when we do that. Um, but there, there was a time when it was a dude that, like, just because of his career and his title, like, should be known to be, like, a pretty tough person. And they had a clip in there of him, like, jumping a creek. And when he got to the other side, he kind of, like, slipped and just kind of, not quite face planted, but definitely just like all fours on the ground. And I was like, you know, I, I don't know if we need to show that, you know, that guy, right? Like that, this is who he is and that's what everybody thinks he is. Like, let's keep him, you know, as like a, a dude that's almost infallible, you know, for these 22 minutes. Um, so I don't know. I'm trying to think of other things that I've like I've taken out. Um, I've been more probably nitpicky on just, like, when it comes down to the sequence of events, when you're talking about seconds, and, like, from one shot to the next, in, like, the hunting sequence, I want those, because it's all boiled down to probably 30 seconds, even if it was a 10-minute long stalk and, you know, this, that, and the other. But I don't want to see, like, a clip of, like, the deer on the left side of the tree, but then when he gets shot, he's on the right side of the tree, but he was going to the left. You know what I mean? And yeah. the editor, maybe it just, like, didn't, like, compute to him that, like, oh, yeah, the deer can't be past the tree, and then he's before the tree when he gets shot, so they don't walk backwards normally, right? But stuff like that, like, in those moments, I've tried to make it, like, as real as possible and make sure that all that stuff is just, like, dialed into a T that, um, you know, that if the turkey's already looking at the camera, you don't then cut to Steve lifting up his gun, right? Because you don't get to pull that off in real life, right? I mean, maybe you do, but most of the time you don't. Like, the gun better get lifted up before the turkey starts looking over at you, you know? Um, so I've been nit nitpicky on that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm trying to think, like, what is anything like, really serious that I've been like, now we got to take out. Yeah, I think yeah, I mean he answered it pretty good. There was some good stuff there. I, I was hoping for like, oh yeah, Steve did something really dumb or fell on his face. Yeah, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But I mean that's because we all do it, right? Like we all know that there's something. That... Yeah, no, and, and honestly, man, I would I would always uh, be fighting to keep that kind of stuff in yeah. there because it, I think it just makes it relatable, you know. Yeah. That it's just it's just not that everybody's perfect and it's always a perfect haunt and it's just success, success, success. Because that's not how it goes, you know. And, um, you know, people, I mean, there's. it's not like it's a secret formula, right? Like the protagonist or the hero has to struggle in a story for there to be like sort of this outcome to where then you like cheer him on or her on at the end, right? If, that, if, if they just have success the whole time and then he ends or she ends with success, you're like, eh, right? But if you saw them get kicked down and beat down and, and whatever, and then they struggle through something, then all of a sudden when there's the resolution, you know, you're like, yay! Yeah. You know? I agree with that 100%. Personal. Yeah. 
You guys have this this awesome just empire, man. Meat eater. You guys have done wonderful things. Um, you know, for 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 hunting, for anglers, for the perception of of what we do. Conservation. Uh, conservation. I mean, you guys are. I mean, I th- I think you've really saved an industry. Quite honestly, uh, what what's kind of the next evolution of of meat eater? What can we look forward to? Oh boy. <laughs> I'm trying to make the next meat eater. <laughs> TikTok, right? That's. A... <laughs> I don't know if it's and I'm not saying that it's me necessarily hosting, but um, I'm always, you know, when we when I have to be like introspective about that and then look to the future, I like to think back to like you know how we got here and what made us, and it's like, you know, without Steve and that meat eater show, you know, none of this other stuff, you know, First Light wouldn't have had the success that they've had, and. You know, Meteor as a company, you know, wouldn't have become what it is. Um, so I think that, you know, we need to stick to, you know, really good uh, hosting and, and find that in, you know, people and either, you know, bring that out of them, you know, or, or you know, and, and, or just find the natural talent that has it and continue to, you know, work diligently at, you know, being really good storytellers. And, um I think that that's sort of that that should be like the leading edge of the sword, and then if, if that you know if we continue doing that, then we'll have you know the success that comes with it. You know, um, I'm personally starting to uh, work more uh, with First Light. Like Steve and I have always sort of been, I guess like like the second tier over of like you know the first people that a lot of times would get you know, to look at, you know, gear that was coming out and doing some field testing. Um, but for a long time, by the time we would get a look at it, even if we had issues with it, it would be so far in production that, you know, maybe you could or couldn't make a change. Or maybe you can make small change, but you couldn't make big change because, I mean, it's just the way that, you know, the business of building gear is. You know, there's timelines and they're, they're long and stretched out, but, We've actually now made it even longer, almost added a whole year to the process so that not only I, but anybody that's, you know, that does field testing for first light can really wear the product for at least a full fall season. That's when most of us are using it. Um, Before there's any talk of like sending then said product into, uh, you know, sort of like for final and, and factory production. Right. So, um, I'm pretty excited about that because I think it's just going to help us like really step it up as far as uh, you know bringing the best hunting gear uh, to the market. And um, it's cool now, like we're already looking at stuff that's coming out that's going to be coming out in 24 that we started working on a year ago. And so we're going to be gear testing it now because we talked about it a year ago. So we've got like the first sort of you know rendition of them. It might even be the second rendition or iteration of said product, but um, a bunch of us are going to get to now work on, you know, live in it, test it, you know, tweak things. Um, and it's cool because we like, we know like the goal is to have it come out in 24, but we're like so far ahead that we know that if something's wrong, it can be fixed. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, you know, and really, really being able to tell the story of how we, you know, got in very early on a lot of this product design and, um, you know, kind of were able to help see it all the way through to something that's, uh, you know, tangible and uh, 
and that, uh, you know, I, I can personally feel very proud of and stand behind it because I know, you know, what it took to, you know, to build that piece of gear. So, um, it's personal. As far as content point. goes, man, we're going to keep making Meat Eater. We're going to keep making, uh, you know, all kinds of content. You know, my show is slated for, you know, more seasons, um, which is on the hunt. For those of you out there that haven't uh, listened or seen it, and you can see that on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. But, um, yeah, man, we're going to keep doing our thing, um, making content, you know, and uh, hopefully keep it keep it for free so everybody can keep watching it, you know. Yeah. I think from an outsider's perspective, every, everything you guys touch turns to gold. So, um, But I think a lot of that has come from the hard work and, and everything that you've put into it. So keep it up, uh, and I think you, you know everything will keep heading in the right direction. Um, Where can people find you on social media, Giannis? It's uh, my name, so it's Giannis, J-A-N-I-S, and then underscore Putelis, P-U-T-E-L-I-S. Outstanding. And that's, it. that's on Instagram. I don't do Facebook or TikTok. I'm too uh, too young for Facebook, too old for TikTok. <laughs> That's fair. It's all good. So well, we really appreciate your time and uh, good luck with the rest of this season. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you guys put out. Right on, man. Good chat with you guys. Thanks, Thanks. guys.